welcome back to Commodity Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the team from Mercado.com.au. We are a team of agricultural market analysts, and we like to use data to form opinions on markets and the general agricultural space. These informal conversations are generally long-form discussions, about 20 to 40 minutes long, where we discuss events or factors in the agricultural space with a particular bias towards Australian agriculture. These discussions are either with our internal team of analysts or they are with some special guests. We hope you enjoy the conversation and gain some insights. If you've got any questions or if you want to suggest some ideas to us, please get in contact in the usual places, on, on email, on Twitter, wherever you uh, follow us. Uh, before we jump into it, I just want to say a big thank you to one of our supporters. Without our supporters, this wouldn't be possible. Today's podcast supporter is Cleaver's Meat. For a long time, Cleaver's been well known for producing fantastic quality meat raised on good Australian farms. Quality has always been at the centre of their business. And they've made a big change now. As well as offering the normal prime cuts, you know, your steaks, etc. They've actually moved into convenient ready meals. We don't always have the time to do, you know, a nice big slow-cooked roast or, you know, steak and veggies. And sometimes we just got to get something quick and tasty. And uh, this is a good thing that they've moved into uh, uh, convenient ready meals because we know the quality that they've taken with their prime cuts will be transitioned into these ready meals. So you can actually get something that is good and healthy. For example, they've got some pretty good beef hot dogs, chicken nuggets, and a new lasagna that you can just shove in the oven and it's ready, you know, 20 minutes later. So if you don't got much time on your hands and you want something uh, quick and tasty to eat, then definitely look up uh, Cleaver's Organic Products. Uh, you can get them in all the usual places, Coles, Woolies, and those uh, independent stores. So let's just get on to the conversation. Today, the conversation will be with Robert Herman of Mercado.com.au. Today, we will be talking about his trip up to the Canberra bubble. Uh, he's been up there at the NFF 40-year anniversary summit and the gala dinner, and uh, we thought it would be a good opportunity of him being up there to have a chat about it, find out what happened, what he thought about it, what he thought about the 2030 roadmap, and also our views on the new advertisement for We Are Australian Farmers. So we thought we'd just jump into it, and uh, Robert, what what was the uh, the whole day, couple of days about? Well, uh, <laughs> you're right, it was... Um a little bit like stepping into a, a bubble because uh, mainly because I was probably I probably looked like a tourist up there. I don't get to Canberra very often, and uh, in fact, it was my first time I'd ever been in in Parliament House, which um, is a little bit embarrassing, I suppose. But um, I and, and Andrew, I posted a photo back to my daughters, uh, myself and their uncle Mark. And uh, their comment was, we look like extras out of Utopia, so... Or extras from Pingu. <laughs> yeah, extras from somewhere. Um, but the, the whole objective of this was, an, well, it's, it's Australian Farmers Week or Farm Week or something like that. So all things agriculture are in play and they tend to congregate towards Canberra and um, for better or for worse. But it also, I suppose, means that you get a chance, or agriculture gets a chance, to make its pitch to the people who are in power. And it was interesting to see that the um, there were parliamentarians swanning around everywhere. You know, I, we had um, Scott Morrison, um, or as uh, you know, the people in the bush call him, ScoMo, 
uh, as the keynote speaker and he was very supportive of agriculture and, and very happy to be a part of it. But also, you know, the Bridget McKenzie, the um, Minister for Agriculture, played a leading role. Um, the Shadow Minister for Agriculture, Joel Fitzgibbon, uh, David Littleproud, the, uh, the guys in charge of trying to figure out what's going on with the drought and with water. And, um, and then, you know, then you start to talk about the stars and, uh, you know, Pauline Hanson, uh, Pauline Hanson wandered past and, of course, she must get sick of people turning her at their heads to look at it. But, um, but that was it. And uh, we're all there to talk about all things agriculture, Andrew. So a lot of politicians there. Were there many actual farmers there or just industry folk? No, there was a lot of there was a lot of farmers, but they were farmers who were the ones that were involved in agro politics. So they were the people who um, were, More were thick farmers, those type of ones. Yeah, yeah. and and also because it was uh, the 40th anniversary of the founding of the NFF, um, there were a lot of um, of the people who had been involved in the past there as well, and they were honoured and 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 they should have felt very proud about the fact that they started an organisation 40 years ago, which now is is quite a strong voice, a very strong voice um, for agriculture. So, I guess uh, let's let's go on to that 100 billion dollar plan because that has been a big focus of it. And so we spoke to Fiona Simpson a couple of uh, months ago about this $100 billion plan. And they'd mentioned that the uh, interim report would be out in October, which, which they have released, which is good. Uh, just to give a bit of a summary of it, it's an aspirational plan for Australian agriculture to be worth $100 billion by 2030. Uh, so we're a couple of years into that, uh, that target. Uh, I think it was begun in 2018, 2017, around about then. So, you know, what does the report card say and what was the general consensus around the rooms about this $100 billion plan? Well, there's no doubt that there's a lot of support in the, uh, of the what I saw up in Canberra. and But that should be qualified because that's what you would expect. It was an NFF function. Um, there are NFF people involved. And, um, and, and also the government was, was very supportive. And I suppose... That makes a lot of sense. It's easier for somebody like the NFF to have a an aspirational plan for agriculture than the government because, uh, you know, it means they don't have to do it. They probably know less about what they should be doing and, and what might be possible. And I suppose if everything goes wrong, you've got someone else to blame. But the... Um, and I think the other thing about it is you, you mentioned aspirational, and I think that's true. However, there should be some credit given to the fact that there is a detailed plan. And the plan, uh, NFF have been at pains to say that they want to make sure this isn't just a glossy document that after a period of time, you know, gets put in the bottom drawer. So part of that is having annual reviews. And there'll be another review next year where they will, uh, to the best of their ability, honestly look at how they're tracking on the plan, uh, what's going well, what areas need to work harder, and um, and whether they're going to make it or not, and and of course that'll also be a measure um, along the way as to say, well, are we going to get there? You know, is a hundred billion dollars achievable? And there's arguments that you know some people are saying, oh, it, it should be more, and there are people actually who spoke said, oh, we should be aiming higher, and then there are other people who are saying, well, it's a it's just a number, you know, a hundred billion. Why wasn't it? Why isn't $997 million, um, a billion dollars instead of $100 billion? So 
there's a lot of there's a lot of things at play in the promotion and marketing of these objectives. But that said, I I think it's to the credit of the industry that we now have something that is being measured and has been put out there as a as a target, and that lets people build businesses and build strategies around trying to achieve that target and, and, and what their contribution is going to be. Right, up. so anyway, they've got their first year report. Um, obviously, it's a long-term plan between now and 2030. But uh, if we look at their projections, they project now to miss their target by 16 billion and they aim to get about 84 billion or 84.3 billion to be precise which, you know, largely that number is a bit fluffy because we're still a long way from 2030 and, you know, anything could happen between now and then. And we've had effectively two years of droughts. So income on farm is, is, is going to be lower by that purpose. But it's actually, I guess, a reasonably good doc- document in that it lists all the different pillars and uh, where they're doing well and where they're doing uh, poorly. It's probably no point us looking at the areas they're doing well because, well, if we're doing well on that, then... <coughs> Nothing to see. We can just carry on. Maybe we'll talk about some of the some of the pillars where they are probably lagging back a little bit. Uh, here's one: uh, farm businesses. This is an aspiration. Uh, farm businesses have embraced new governance models, helping them plan better for the future, manage risk, and increase profit. Uh, so the metrics are on that one: ninety percent of family farms have documented business plans, including succession plans. Uh, so basically they're looking according to their documentation that they, they are probably on the bottom end in terms of uh, getting to that target what, what are you seeing around the grounds that you're involved in a few farm boards what are you actually seeing in terms of governance structures on farm well I think if you're um, in our business Andrew if you are involved in farm businesses they're generally businesses that have actually starting to approach and address some of those challenges um, so we don't see it at a day-to-day level where there's a, of the same uh, magnitude, I guess, or, or across the board. But, 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 but sorry, just to interrupt there as well. I guess when we're dealing with farms, you know, they tend to be the more almost larger scale, more organised mm-hmm. operators. So we're probably yeah. a bit biased in terms of those organisations have probably all got fairly strong, almost semi-corporate structures within them, as opposed to being you know, the family farm. That's mm. something that we have to be cognizant of. Yeah, and that and that's a, that's a really good point because the um, there's no doubt that the that you you mentioned that pillar where there's a you know I think Tony Ma, the uh, CEO of the NFF, said that you know in terms of report card, the report card would say can do better, and that's there's no doubt about that. But that's always going to be a challenge in agriculture, you know, especially at the family farm level. Um, at the family farm level, the real strength has been in production and um, and I guess surviving a lot of the challenges of agriculture, but you know that the doing the hands-on activities, it's that business element that uh, you know many family farmers struggle with, especially when there is generational change and uh, you know people come in with different ideas and and all that can tend to lead to conflict. But those areas are, are areas that must be dealt with and must be um, addressed and, and improved on. Um, like like all the pillars, they have a, um, they have a it, it, there's a role to play. And if you're going to get anywhere near $100 billion, you won't be able to afford to have weak links, whether it's in the innovation, whether it's in labour use or, 
or the, the management of farms, they will all have to be uh, running at their optimum to get to those um, optimistic targets. So let's look at another one then. Uh, one of the metrics is to double the number of tertiary or vocational agricultural graduates by 2030. Is that a good aspiration? Um, well, <laughs> uh, we did have a bit of a conversation offline, Andrew, and uh, and we did have a differing of opinion here. I think it is a good aspiration. We we know that in agriculture there is a shortfall at the moment of um, for labour and and in management. You know, there are a lot of um, applications that, that that go unfilled. However. Um, just quickly building up the tertiary graduates isn't necessarily going to be the solution. I mean, what we're going to need is is people who are being trained to fill the roles and the tasks and the challenges that are for the future. And, and that will put pressure on the universities and ag colleges to make sure that they are uh, addressing the uh, the labour requirements of the of the of the of the sector of the agricultural sector uh, for the future. That, that's not always the case, as we know. You know, it can it, they can lag a bit where the the demand actually leads the education system. So that's an area that's going to have to have to step up. So I've got an opposing view to that to an extent. I think education is all very well and good, but the reality is that as much as there is a lot of roles that go unfilled, a lot of a lot of roles in agriculture don't actually require tertiary education. A lot of them are labour and they need skilled, strong labour as opposed to, you know, masters of agribusiness uh, graduates. And there's a lot of fresh graduates out there that are still struggling to get jobs. And I think if you doubled the number of these these uh, students in the next, you know, 10 years effectively or 11 years, there's not going to be the jobs to meet all the supply of, of students. So then you're going to have a lot of students out there have invested a lot of time in studying these degrees or vocational courses uh, and they're going to come out with with potentially limited job prospects. And we see it with, with a lot of other industries, engineering, teaching, nursing. Over time, the, the demand is strong for a while and uh, everyone goes to study that course and when they come out, you know, the demand has been has been met. So I'd be... Very careful if I was uh, saying double the uh, number of graduates in the next 10 years. And and from a student's point of view, if I was a young person in agriculture, the last thing I'd be wanting is a doubling of the competition for every job. Yeah, true. And I understand that point of view. Of course, if I'm in a major employer and I'm now having trouble filling um, labour shortages, I have a different view. And the other thing to remember is that we also... But, 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 if, but if I'm a major employer... Supply and demand works with staff as well as other products. So if I've got 100 applicants for one job, then I don't necessarily have to pay quite as much because supply is uh, abundant. Yeah, I, I'm, look, we, we'll have to disagree on that because I think that's a, pretty, um, that's a pretty basic way of looking at it because what we need is bright minds. And, and, and one way to get bright minds is to get more people thinking that agriculture is a career. And there was a period of time in the last 20 or 30 years where agriculture was actually seen as not a great career. And, and to the, to the um, I guess, to the detriment of the industry, there was act, 
there was a lot of um, long-term farmers who didn't encourage or actively disencouraged their children um, to follow agriculture because they didn't see that the um, you know the effort was being rewarded, and so the long the longer term was we saw a lot of people go into um, tertiary education who had strong agricultural backgrounds, but they um, they ended up in engineering or medicine or law, and uh, and and I would like to think that in the future we're going to have people considering. Um, a, a career in agriculture, just like you consider a career in in mining engineering or, or in um, you know in surgery or something like that, because it's going to be, we, we know that this demand for agricultural output is not going to go away. You know, the world is going to want more, and we're going to, have to be doing it smarter. And part of that um, education focus is going to be on attracting people who can think of better ways of doing things in the future. And maybe they're better ways of, of applying, of, of solving the labour problem. I mean, if you look at in Meatworks now, you know, a lot of work has gone into robotics now. Well, that's the thing. A lot of jobs, you know, even like at the moment, we're automating a lot of manual jobs. Uh, you just got to look at the farm that can do 10,000 hectares of cropping with two free staff versus what was that 30 years ago? Well, that's right. I mean, that's ten, t- 10 times more performance than what we were seeing back in the day. And that automation is now moving into you know, what would be traditionally be considered to be uh, the white-collar work. And so that's where there will be an issue. The demand is there just now, but the demand could be lower, plus the supply could be higher. But I think the point, the point you're making can be applied to any industry, though. Which, which course do you take? where there'll be a shortage of labour in the future. I mean, the risk is, I mean, if you look at law, people are saying, well, um, you know, artificial intelligence is going to mean there's a lot less requirement for lawyers. So I think that's that's what, that's a point. It's well, a I point well you did, made. You, you just got to choose a course that you think you're going to enjoy and probably a generalised course. Well, and that's what I'm saying. I reckon agriculture is a course that I would be enjoying and we've had examples of that um, in our business where people have come into agriculture um, and and when you start to scratch the surface and and look for <coughs> satisfaction in what you do, uh, agriculture is certainly something that can can offer that. And and the challenge of the future, the challenge of all the things that we're talking about that are challenges in the future, being sustainable, um, dealing with climate change, uh, dealing with variable markets, uh, absorbing new technology, is all going to be big challenges. But the rewards for those people who can. Um, contribute to that success is going to be a real job satisfaction, I think. So, how's that for a um, NFF advert? That's uh, that should be taped, I think, Andrew, and they could be using that. Yep, somebody's been on the Kool Aid over the last couple of days. Uh, so, if we look at another one, halving on-farm food waste by twenty thirty, that's one of the other ones which are expected to be, you know, could do better. What do you think about that, having food waste? Uh, well, because Sorry, because it's not necessarily just, like, food waste is a major issue and it's, you know, it's one of those things we've got to consider when the fact is there are still large degrees of the world in hunger. But food waste is not just an on-farm thing, it's also post-farm gate issue as well, probably more so than on-farm, so... Be interesting to see uh, if there's any discussion of that. Yeah, look, and I think it, I think that hones back to efficiency. I mean, if you're going to, and, and in this case, we're talking about waste on farm. I suppose you know we're not talking about what happens when 
you know, we, we spill a bit of wheat when it gets to, uh, you know, China or something like that. Um, and, and that efficiency should be a natural objective of, um, of any business. And if you can identify that the amount of waste or, or sorry, first of all, identifying what, what the amount of waste is and what the amount of uh, uh, spoilage is in, in food and then looking at ways of improving that is just a sensible approach, I think. And, of course, it plays into your cost of production because you know, calculating cost of production is, is the cost of producing something divided by the number of units that you actually sell. So if you can increase the number of units you sell by having less waste, um, you know, that, that should be a good objective, I would have thought. I think it'll be an interesting one. Um, it'll be interesting actually to see the stats on when I say halving farm, on farm food waste. But we interested to see how much is actually wasted on farm. I don't, I don't see that stat anywhere at the moment. I think I've read somewhere that it might be thirty percent globally. Mm. But I'm not on a global level. I can imagine we're probably a little bit more efficient than a lot of other nations around the world. Um, but conversely, halving food waste effectively adds extra supply onto the market. Which, yeah. It, and which <clears throat> again, comes back to that supply and demand picture. Yeah, but you can't, you can't get to $100 billion without increasing supply or increasing price or increasing both. So, you know, if we're going to increase our farm gate output from, I think it was, I think the benchmark when they started was 60 66. billion. 60 billion, was it? 66 or something? something to yeah. 100, then we're going 62. to produce more. I mean, we've had some commodities where the prices have gone up and have helped things but we've seen that the um the major reason that the benchmark is um is looking like a stretch now or we're struggling to maintain is because our output's mm. gone down that's a reason that's a cause for, that's because of the drought yeah but i think you can you can't judge your forecast for 2030 for 10 years away based on the income from the last two years no because it's touch wood it's it's hopefully these are two abhorrent years and yeah in that time we go back to average and that's really what we're looking at yeah and that that's a good point and that's i think that's a point to be made about this report card i mean this is the first report card out of what will be 12 report cards till we get to 2030 and um and so you keep that in context but you have to actually have report one to make the next next report and the ones after that um, uh, relevant, you know, you've got to be measuring your performance over a period of time, and I think that's that's entirely um, appropriate. And there's always going to be those black swan events, you know, your trade disputes, war, drought, pestilence, famine, mm. whatnot, that will uh, have an impact upon these uh, these figures. So we could have still have good good times and good income but still not meet this in 2030, but 2029 might be 120 billion. Yeah, so. and, and look, that's right. And I don't... It's all about improvement. It is about... It. That's exactly right. But if you're going to improve... I mean, there is an old adage, Andrew, you can't... If you can't measure it, you can't uh, improve it. And so this is about having a starting point. It's about measuring the progress and it's about having an objective. And prior planning prevents... Another P word, performance. Prior planning. Go, just repeat that again. I missed that. Well, I can't. Well, we do have uh, prior plans prevents piss poor performance. Oh, okay. Another oh, that's, a, for, that's uh, I did. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure how that applies to this discussion, but it's an interesting, uh, interesting. But if you have planning, at the moment, these guys are putting together a plan, a yep. roadmap, 
and it prevents having a bad mm. performance. I think one of the challenges is that in the end, the NFF doesn't produce anything. So it's, pro it's providing a plan for other people that where other people have to actually do the work and do the production. And that's the big challenge. And that's why I think a major role of the NFF is this engagement. So they'll need to engage back through their, um, their representative organisations, so people like uh, the, the Cattle Council, uh, the re relevant um, state boards, um, sheep meats, sheep producers, um, and then, then those sort of organisations that filter down to get the business happening. But I think it's entirely appropriate that an organisation like NFF is trying to drive this agenda because if not them, then the question is who? I mean, all the other organisations are fragmented to look after their own particular um, segments of the industry. Someone needs to, it's either it's either someone like the NFF or the government, and and I'd much rather have someone like the NFF who understands uh, and has and you know has real skin in the game in this um, running this show. Right. Well, let's move on from the uh, hundred-year plan or hundred-billion-dollar plan. And let's talk about the... It might turn out to be a 100-year plan, might, Andrew. You might, might be prophetic there. Might be. Uh, and we'll talk about the advert. So the NFF have released an advert called uh, We Are Australian Farmers, which its aim is uh, to, I guess, bridge the gap between rural and city. And I thought it was worthwhile. We've both seen the advert, Robert and I. I thought it's worthwhile we watch it and you can, you can listen to it just now. And uh, we'll sort of have a chat about what we think uh, the point of the advert is and uh, whether it gets the message across properly. Why do you do what you do? Getting up when the rest of the world is asleep. Do you do it for those around you? Is it as simple as pushing through those frustrating moments for that first sip of coffee? Or is it the times when you feel part of something bigger? A team? A community? A family? Is it for the opportunity to teach yourself something new? Because you can see the world is changing. You can see there is a better way. You see the problems. But you also see the answers, the opportunities, you know that you can make an impact. You see that we're all pushing in the same direction, all on this journey together. And whether you're a doer, a thinker, a problem solver, a deal maker, an educator, a CEO, or just a dreamer, you can see that we are a nation built upon these shared values. In the city or the country, we're all part of the same cycle. We are Australian farmers. Right, oh, so that's the uh, the advert. What do you think, Robert? You were there when they, um, I think they released it during the yeah, gala, the didn't they? Yeah, the, the, the release on the big screen in the big hall of uh, Parliament House with uh, with all the big names there. Um, some, you know, <laughs> yeah, a, a, lot of, a lot of people there. Um, look, I, I, I think... We have to under. I'm not an expert on on an advert and how it works. Um, I, I watch them and I yell at them on the telly and I get frustrated. So, but I don't think that makes me an expert. But 
I think we've got to understand that the point of the um, of the ad will be to to try and bridge this gap between that's been emerging between the understanding of people in the city and what we do in agriculture. And it's a real concern for agriculture. We see it in a lot of ways where people um, are concerned that we don't um, we don't look after our animals, um, we we don't look after nature and the environment. Um, we misuse chemicals, all those sort of concerns are, are about. And if you go back 30 or 40 years ago, most people in the cities had first-hand um, contact with a farmer, whether it was an uncle or whether it was a grandfather or whether it was a cousin or something, and they would they would have regular contact and they would see people milking a cow and they would go out and they would feed a pet lamb and gather the eggs and uh, and shoot a rabbit perhaps, I don't know. That's gone, and we know that's gone now because the the urban population has grown dramatically, and a lot of people in recent years have come from other countries who've never really been out in the city, out of the city. So, the the aim of this ad is to try and start to build that bridge. Now, the question will be for others to answer whether it it, it does that well or not. Um, but it says that. Um, it plays on this theme that uh, we know farmers are trusted. You know, if you ask the question, are farmers trusted? Then yes, they are. So you've got that little bit of money in the bank, if you like. But then when you ask them about, well, what do farmers do about, you know, wh- wh- why do farmers use glyphosate? Um, and, and people have got no idea and no answer to that. And in fact, they feel that, um, you know, that's, that doesn't resonate with the idea that our farmers can be trusted. So we, we need, I think the, the industry has been saying for a while that we need to build these bridges. And I think a lot of people are doing it. You know, social media has got campaigns going and people are posting photos um, and, and some are going very well in terms of getting the message out um, and others aren't. But this is the NFF's approach and it, and it is at a high level. It's at that sort of fuzzy, warm-feeling level. Yeah, you made a few points there. I think my only... I thought it was a good advert. I thought it was very, very beautifully shot. A lot of lens flare and looked nice, beautiful vistas and whatnot. I'm still not 100% sure. Like, I know it's targeted towards the the city, but it's hard to tell whether it's targeted towards the city or, or the farmer. The, the, I guess the message I got from it, which was that, you know, life is the way it is for everyone. You know, you have hard days, you have good days, and that's the case whether you're in the city or whether you're on the farm. And I think that's the reality as well, is that as much as we talk about a, a divide between the country and the city and the lack of understanding from people in the country towards the... Uh, lack of people in the city understanding from the city to the country there's also that lack of understanding at times from people in the country towards people in the city so you quite often see people saying you know they get it so easy in the city you know we'll if we we'll stop we'll stop producing our food and we'll see how easy it is for them and I think we've got to be careful as an industry that we don't have this that sort of arrogant type of view towards city folk because at the end of the day I can almost guarantee that the average person in the city is probably doing it tougher a lot of the time than the average farmer. Yes, we're in drought, but you know, incomes in the city are not people in the city just because they live in the city are not uh, wallowing in uh, 
in lots of cash and spare time. No, I think you're right. I mean, everybody's everybody's um, that's got their kinda, challenges. That's what I kind of got from the advert with the, uh, you know, the, the guy stuck in the commute, you know, trying to get to work, still having to get up early. Both farmers and people mm. in the city were getting up early. And no, it was interesting that way. So, but remember that we, the people in the city don't have to sell their story to the people in the country because, you know, it's not... That's not where the problem is. The problem no, is in that the country people have to sell their story to the city. And what they, I mean, a term that's been used and I think will be used a lot more is this one of shared values. And what they're trying to say is that, you know, we've all got the same challenges or we've all got challenges. We've all got, as you said, Andrew, we have good days and bad days. Things go well, things don't go so well. Um, what agriculture is trying to say is that just like people who are working in in the mining or people who are working in um, in the banks or in office buildings, um, we're all trying to get ahead. We're all contributing. And if we can get that message across, then hopefully we have a better chance of, of people understanding what we do. Because at the moment, there are a lot of things we do on farms that um, that people have no idea why we do that. I mean, what you know, why, why do we... Why do we um, castrate lambs and, and dock their tails? You know, they're, they're things that would have been understood 30 years ago in a, in, a, in a very basic way. But now if we were to try and explain to somebody in Collins Street or in George Street in Sydney or, or wherever, um, we would just get a blank look. And, and in fact, we may find that they would become horrified with some of the things we do. And um, that's where the difficulty comes, like how... Let's, let's use the castration of, of lambs as, as a good example. I'm a bit sorry I brought that up there. Because, well, we can anthropomorphise that and we would be, you know, shaken in our, in our seats if it happened to us. And that's generally what the, the public in the city tend to do a lot of. So what do we... How can you get that message across that it is acceptable to do that or it's something that needs to be done? You know, you're not going to get that across mm. in an advert. It's, it's a 10-minute discussion. Uh, exactly. And all you can do, I suppose, is have a message that, you know, farmers are trustworthy and we do what we do because we have to do. It's not because we are a bunch of cruel old... That's others. right. And so it's building... It's trying to build on that trust that's there with farmers in saying, well, we don't do... Th we wouldn't... We, trust us. We're not idiots we're, as farmers. We don't do things just because we do them. Um, we do... They are for a reason and and... The fact that we, we have to do things to animals and we have to use chemical to, to be productive in, in crops and, and those sort of things, um, trust us that there is a reason that we do it. it. It is the best way that we can produce the food and the fibre that, um, that the world requires from us. And, and not just the food and fibre the world requires from us, but that contributes to the Australian economic success story and and you know we we're really only just touching the tip of the iceberg as to where that possibility is in the future you know we've got this growing we've talked about it a lot this growing demand for food and fiber in the world and we're beautifully positioned to and poised to to deal with it um i mean a classic example is this clean and green and you guys talked about it last week about the australian uh, african swine fever um we, we do have this and there are things that we will do. You know, we're even just getting the trust when we say we don't want people to bring in food into Australia to jeopardise our agriculture. Trust us. That is a really serious issue for us. And so that's where this idea of, I think, 
and I'm sounding like I'm an advertising professor here, but I think that's where this idea of shared values comes from and that's what this advert's doing. It, you're right, Andrew, you can't have the discussion about, um, about glyphosate or, or mulesing or, or live export or any of these contentious things that, that, are, that are in the marketplace at the moment and, and deal with them in an advert like this. But what you can try and do, and what we see in a lot of big corporations, is you try and set the scene to have that conversation. And I think that trust, you know, trust us. Uh, yes, you trust us, but also trust us that we have the same sort of values that you do, except we're in a different industry. Yeah, I think that's, you know, this, I still find that, you know, I'm, I'm a simple, simple Scotsman. And I still find the concept of shared values, you know, relatively hard to discern on a personal level. That might explain why Scotland's in the very close to the Arctic and, and we're down here in the nice warm weather, Andrew. It's probably also why we're terrible at sports at the moment and, and, <laughs> and a whole host of other things. Yeah, but well, uh, I think we'll, everybody can claim to be terrible at sport at some stage. Well, I think a 40-year run of being bad at sports is probably uh, we're due to. Uh, yeah. Andy Murray had a win overnight. Yeah, Andy Murray, but you know, we had uh, this is probably completely irrelevant, but we had a Scottish football team celebrating that we beat San Marino six 0 <laughs> who are all part time players. Anyway, I divest. But from this shared values, I guess I saw a statement saying that you know we share the same values as in the farming industry, as our brethren in the city. And I guess a part of me thinks, well, I guess when I read that, I sort of I'm an individualist. And when I see these sort of um, homogenized sort of shared values, I always think, well, okay, we may have shared values or some shared values with people in the cities, but I don't even think whole sectors of the agricultural industry have shared values with other parts of agriculture. You know, we can't say, for instance, that all of agriculture is in agreement with imports of grains or... Um, Climate change is another good one, or mm. political ambitions, mm. and you know a good example of it is with the uh, uh, pig swine flu. You know, I put up a tweet about that, and people replied saying, "Well, maybe it's better off if we had swine fever, and because the pig industry is not worth enough, and it would be better off if we could get swine fever to kill all the wild pigs and just sacrifice the pork for that purpose." So they're mm. they're not exactly shared values. So maybe I'm looking at it differently. I don't understand no, the, I, the lingua I, franca, but I just see that people are individuals at heart, or f and some of us are probably more fiercely individual than others. And to say we've got shared values is not correct, in my view, but maybe it's because I'm not understanding Well, I think it depends where you draw the line <clears> of value. You know, you, the, the value, the shared values that I see uh, is what puts together an organisation like the NFF. I mean, if you couldn't get some sort of shared value, then an NFF wouldn't exist, a union wouldn't exist, uh, the Scottish soccer team wouldn't exist, although just, you know, that is debatable. Just. Um, so you do have these, while, while you have individual um, ambition and, and points of difference, there is advantage in, in having a collective approach. And I think uh, I've been strong for a long time on the... Um, on the need for farmers to have a stronger collective approach to these political things. And you use a good example is the US farm lobby. I mean, the US farm lobby 
has been strong for a long time. And it's almost to the point now where they don't have to do anything because the the politicians who have been influenced by that farm lobby are actually thinking firstly, hang on, what does this what will this lobby say about this action? And so we see those small groups of people in a in a really large society like the US, those small group of farmers, and I think there's 0.3% of the US population of farmers, have a a disproportionate influence on policy. Things don't get done, you know, unless they're happy about it. And and that's because they're a collective and they do have that shared ambition of, of let's somehow get together, even though we're all individuals and different, let's somehow get together so we've got a voice. Because if we don't get together and we don't have a voice, then you have no voice. And that, you know, 40 years ago, um, before the NFF came up, uh, came to came into being, there were the individual um, uh, bodies. So there was representatives of grain and meat and But in, in the US, is it not still individual bodies for commodities? Well... Because it's the Wheat Farmers yeah. Association, Pig Farmers Association, cattle but, producers, and because they have all... All wheat producers have probably got the same wants and needs, but they could be quite different from a corn producer. Yeah, and and different from perhaps a, a consumer of grain, you know, Where, producer consumer. That's, I guess that's the difficulty between these big homogenized yeah. farmers federations is the potential for well, you've got competing interests across them. Yeah. But I suppose you could say the same thing about a political party. I mean, it's made up... Look at the Labor Party. It's got this very strong union component to it, um, and those unions all have their own individual views. But uh, individually, they can't achieve much. No, true. And I I, I agree with you. Like, I look at... I don't know much about the US system of, of lobbying, but I look at the National Farmers Union in the UK... And, yep, it seems to do a good job of getting its point across uh, for what it can do, at least. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, if you had a thousand individuals or a thousand people backing one point of view, it is going to be stronger when it comes to lobbying governments. And so, like, it is. Like, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just... Um, You didn't mention cynical when you mentioned Scotland. Or or cynical. Yeah. And just pointing out that, you know, there are issues with large-scale lobbying. Yeah, I think there's one no, recent or, or, example. Or non-specific lobbying. One recent example that got me <clears throat> very concerned was the uh, ban on live cattle exports. And that came about not because um, people in the industry said, oh, we need to stop live exports till we sort all this out and, and get it fixed up. It came because there was a media campaign and there was a push from the, the public, the people who don't know and didn't know anything about live exports, to their politicians. And unless you can have an equal push on the other side, then these knee-jerk actions like that banning happen. Now, the reason I call it a knee-jerk reaction is because it didn't last, so therefore it turned out to be not the right decision. Well, no, also, no one had time to prepare or plan for it. Which exactly, is exactly. And nobody took into account of the consequences. And, and you know, the, the consequences are still being felt. The, the, you know, families are still suffering from that. So... If you, the only way you can actually um, have these balancing effects in the in the area where there's public debate is that you have to have somebody who's ready to go. You know, if we're waiting for the local farmer at uh, you know Tennant Creek to to get into you know Catherine to go to the ABC radio to have a radio interview to talk about his live cattle, 
it's not going to happen. So you need somebody who's who's prepared and ready to go. And that's where these organisations are important. But look, we've we've had a really good chat about this, Andrew. I don't know how much, how much longer do you want to go? We're going. Uh, I could go forever on this. Uh, I think I've thought of a few ideas from this for further discussions. Yep. I think you know we've we've we our first podcast, which was. 15 podcasts ago yep. was actually about social license. So if you really <laughs> want to go and delve into this and our viewpoints on it, and then you can go back to then. I think Robert's views have changed slightly. Mine's are probably quite similar to back then. But, <laughs> I'm uh, going to go and listen to it but, now, but just I, to check but, on that. But I, I wasn't at the conference to get, uh, uh, get my uh, training. Yeah, so Andrew yeah, thinks I had too much of the Kool-Aid <laughs> at the conference, and uh, the Kool-Aid was quite red, actually, uh, late on Monday night. I don't know, red Kool-Aid. I thought it, I thought it was uh, sort of a yellow coloured with bubbles in it. No, no, there's no bubbles. With, uh, it was quite caviar. It was quite red, and it, uh, <clears throat> and it came from somewhere near the Barossa Valley, I think. But um, so... Can I, can I just say something, Andrew, about the NFF? And this is a personal thing. Um, the Prime Minister at the time, 40 years ago, was Malcolm Fraser. And Malcolm Fraser was a farmer. And, um, and, he, became, and he was a client of, of ours, of um, Mercado's, uh, or our former entity in Ag Concepts. We, we actually sold his sheep stud for him. And he, became, and he was a friend as, as much as Malcolm could be friends with people. And people who knew him know what I'm talking about. But his foresight in taking the opportunity of having a, uh, a farmer-friendly government, if you like, to put in place the NFF has um, obviously got to be recognised because for something to be still to be going in 40 years, which is what we're celebrating, but also to probably be at its most relevant and its most powerful, I think. I don't know whether people will argue with that or not, but it seems like it to me um, is, is to be commended. I think also, and at the risk of, um, of being on too much Kool-Aid here, Andrew, I think also the CEO, Tony Ma, who, who I only found out is a Bungaree boy, so he comes from just down the road here, um, he is very impressive and certainly is somebody you can imagine could be walking the, the halls of parliament talking and lobbying for farmers. And, of course, um, we're, I'm a fan, and I, I think Mercado's a little bit of a fan of Fiona Simpson. You know, at times you think there are, there are the right people to be in the right positions at the right time, and I think Fiona, being a, an experienced and, and savvy farmer, um, being a female, being presentable and articulate at this time when agriculture is trying to actually stay connected and improve the connection with the city, um, really works, and I had an example of it, Andrew. I saw, I, I, um, I got home one night, and um, Lim was watching the project. It's not something I watch, but they had Fiona Simpson on there. And if you, if anyone knows the people who are on the project, you know they're sort of edgy. They're this, they're that, and the other thing. And you know, it's it's all happening. Edgy like us, you mean? A bit like us, yeah. This could the, or ed- edgy for agriculture. <laughs> yeah. But but the good thing was, from an <clears throat> agricultural person's viewpoint, was that Fiona just fitted in. And, and could hold her own and make sensible points, but at the same time, you know, not be boring, not be overly serious. So and not be aggressive, which we've seen uh, in the past. With exactly, agricultural exactly. And, and that's and that's why I think, and uh, you know, being the father of four daughters, I guess I can I think I can get away with this. But having a female in that position at the moment is is an added value. So their their claim is that, uh, and I was looking at the publication, is that the NFF at forty years is celebrating the past and it's looking to lead for the future. And that's a great objective. Of course, the proof's in the pudding and the runs have got to get on the ground, but 
um, that's where I see them at the moment. So, yeah, I think we'll end it there. I think we've covered a fair old bit today. I've got another topic as well. Um, conferences in agriculture, are they one of the biggest industries? Because <laughs> uh, there has been some discussion about that. About conferences? About conferences on, on Twitter yeah. today. About a, That's why I asked early on how many farmers were actually there. And that's a discussion I think we will have as a future podcast. Yeah, and I think there's a subset of that, Andrew, one that you like is, uh, and can we find a conference where the term social licence isn't used these days? Uh, yeah, probably not. But uh, <laughs> that would be too difficult a challenge. But I guess there are a lot of conferences, and we go to a lot of conferences generally as speakers. Why don't we have one of our own? Well, cause no Just one get would, on the bandwagon. No one would come. Don't no, reckon? No. They're too used to hearing us everywhere. Well, we could try. But no, I think it we would be... We could do something controversial, you know? I don't know. The anti-social licence party. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it would be an interesting conversation to have about actual conferences and the value they provide for the industry because, you know, they are getting more expensive. Each year they seem to go up in price and they are generally funded, a lot of them by levy-paying organisations. So farmers are paying for most of these conferences. But perhaps that's how the economy works, Andrew. You know, people go to conferences and get some money spread around. I go to uh, Canberra and I buy a black suit. So Myers Canberra is saying thank God for the NFF conference. Well, I think when uh, when you turned up at the 6 o'clock in your uh, Iron Williams uh, <laughs> work shirt and... Uh, Redback boots and Mikado cap and Mikado hat yeah. was uh, probably not within the dress code for Parliament. Um, no, but the guy, the guy on security there seemed to know me, which I'm not sure whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. Well, <laughs> there we go. It's probably on one of those watch lists. Uh, but yeah, let's let's end it there, and we'll come back. With, I reckon we can come up with a few more conversations from this one for additional podcasts. Good on you, and I'm pleased you. Um, you got Scotland into the podcast again, Andrew. I thought we might have missed it. Well, I had to get in somewhere. <laughs> right, catch you later, guys. Bye-bye. So think, that, that was an interesting conversation. I think, I think it uh, gave us a bit of uh, an outlook on the, uh, the the Canberra bubble and the NFF conference. And for a lot of farmers who, who weren't clearly able to make it or even a lot of industry folk who weren't able to make it. So it's good to get that insight into what actually happened. And... Uh, this podcast is free of charge to all of our dear listeners. So if you could do us a massive favour, it doesn't cost you anything, just look at your phone, go onto your Apple Marketplace or Spotify or wherever you listen to this and leave a, leave a rating, uh, leave a review, uh, as long as it's a good review. We don't want to hear any bad reviews. You can uh, take any of your criticisms up with us uh, privately. Uh, that would be really fantastic if you could do that. Share it with your friends and family. Uh, stay safe. Hope the rain comes when you need it. And uh, have a good one. Bye-bye.